Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Um, I'm actually going to be preaching this morning about Palm Sunday. Um, now, I'm not sure if I might need spotlighting, but I'm just going to keep talking anyway. Um, why don't you join me in turning to Mark chapter 11 uh, in your Bibles? Um, because as I just mentioned, today in kind of the Easter calendar is Palm Sunday. It's a day where we celebrate um, and remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey about 2,000 years ago. Now, hearing that, you might wonder, understandably, what could possibly be worth celebrating about someone riding a donkey into a city in a time where a lot of people rode donkeys into cities. This was just the way people transported themselves, okay? But this is no normal journey. Riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem is Jesus' way of showing people that he is God's promised king. And the response from the people who witnessed this firsthand is pretty spectacular as well. People are coming out of their homes to see what's going on. They're joining the procession. They're taking off their cloaks and placing them in front of the donkey. They're pulling leaves off nearby palm trees and placing them on the ground. They're bringing whatever they've got and whatever they can find and laying it before Jesus. And as they construct this kind of red carpet of cloaks and palm branches, they're shouting at the top of their voice, Hosanna, Hosanna. Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all tell this story in their Gospels. And we're going to look at Mark's version. I was torn between which one to share this morning. So I just picked the one that was probably written first. And that was Mark. So Mark 11 verses 1 to 11 say this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they'd cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, because of the circumstances of the last year, which don't worry, we're not going to dwell on for long, uh, all of us are leaving our houses a bit less than usual right now, aren't we? Uh, Claire and I moved house five months ago, as many of you know. And because people are generally staying indoors at the moment, we haven't really met many of our neighbours. But this week, something happened on our road, which got everybody on our street out into the road to get a glimpse of what was going on. 
All it took, apparently, to get everybody out onto the street was half a dozen police cars, almost as many ambulances, a fire engine, and even a helicopter, which landed in a nearby park. See, there was a fire on a ground floor flat in our, in our road and the emergency services had to close the road. They turned up in force. And, and in Britain, we are a bit of a nosy people, aren't we? So we all needed to get a closer look at what was going on. So I met some of my neighbors for the first time, uh, all trying to get a glimpse of what was going on on our street. But in the passage that we just read, something happens on the outskirts of Jerusalem that gets crowds of people leaving their homes to get a closer look. But at first, it's, it's kind of hard to understand why people are so fascinated by what's going on. The first thing that Jesus has done is he's asked two of his disciples to go to a nearby village and borrow, should I say borrow, a donkey. I mean, let's call it how it is. They're taking this donkey without permission. It's someone else's. There's a word for that, right? Uh, but I suppose Jesus was always planning to return the donkey. So that's what makes it okay. But people try to stop the disciples. Understandably, they're untying someone else's donkey. So people say, what are you doing? And they respond in just the way Jesus has told them to. They say, the Lord needs this donkey. And the people say, okay, no problem. And let them go. The disciples go on their way, donkey in tow. Having committed grand theft donkey, they return to Jesus. And because donkeys are really uncomfortable to sit on, they lay their cloaks on the back of the donkey and Jesus gets on. Someone gives the donkey a pat on the backside or dangles a carrot in front of its face and it begins to walk into Jerusalem. Now, apart from the little sort of theft incident, there's not loads to report so far. But it's not actually what happens that matters here. See, this wasn't just Jesus thinking of a creative way to enter the city because his feet are a bit tired. This way he chose to enter Jerusalem was very, very symbolic. This is Jesus declaring to the people of Israel and to the people of the world that he is the Messiah, the savior king promised by God and sent from God who the people had been waiting for. And there are two ways that this event symbolizes that Jesus is king. It's a very clever event because it's, uh, it's relevant both to the, the people who are looking on who are Jewish and the people who are looking on who are familiar with Roman customs as well. Because Jerusalem was a, a Jewish city under Roman occupation. So there's a Jewish relevance and there's a Roman relevance. We'll look at the Jewish relevance first. To understand why uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey is a big deal from a Jewish point of view, you have to know just a little bit about Old Testament prophecy. For hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophets were saying that one day God would send a king to Israel who would be greater than any king they had ever had, even greater than King David, even greater than the wise King Solomon. This king who was called the Messiah was going to rule over the first and only kingdom that would be everlasting. This king would be the savior of God's people. Now, these prophecies about the Messiah king said things like he'll be born into the tribe of Judah in the family line of David. He'll be a kind, gentle king. He'll have compassion on the poor and oppressed. He'll heal people. He'll bring justice, peace and unity to God's people. But some of the other prophecies were really specific. And one of those came from the prophet Zechariah. 
In Zechariah 9, 9, it says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. So what is it that's causing people to leave their homes to get a closer look at what Jesus is doing? It's the fact that they're watching an Old Testament prophecy about Israel's king being completed, fulfilled before their eyes. See, the people of Israel who'd suffered for thousands of years at the hands of oppressive superpowers, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Romans were desperate for a king who would truly set them free. And here he is. In acknowledgement of this, they are shouting at the top of their voices, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, or here is our new king. Jesus riding on a donkey fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah King. That's the Jewish reason that this was a big deal, but there's a Roman reason as well. See, the Romans had a tradition where a general who'd won a great battle would ride into a chariot in ride in a chariot into Rome, the capital city of the empire, as a conquering hero. In response, the crowds would be expected to cheer and exalt them and adore them. This tradition became known as the Roman triumph, which is why sometimes Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey is referred to as the triumphal entry. Everyone in the city would be there shouting and cheering. If you've ever seen the film Gladiator, you might remember the scene where Commodus, who's become emperor by murdering his father, rides into Rome in his chariot, expecting to receive this hero's welcome but he doesn't get it. Instead, the crowds are silent. Some of them are even booing him, shouting in protest. And one of the senators says this line that's always stuck with me. He enters Rome like a conquering hero, but what has he conquered? It gives us a little bit of insight into this Roman tradition and the fact that Jesus is riding into the city as a conquering hero. And even though Jesus is riding a donkey, not in a chariot, the crowds are going wild cheering him, celebrating his victory. But we're left wondering what it is they're celebrating, what victory Jesus is supposed to have won. The people of Jerusalem are rejoicing, probably because they believe Jesus will be the one to overthrow the Romans. Yet here he is sort of subverting a Roman tradition. Perhaps among the crowds of Jewish people celebrating the arrival of their king, there were a few who were muttering the same thing that senator said about Commodus in Gladiator. He enters Jerusalem like a conquering hero, but what has he conquered? Well, the expectation that the people have of Jesus is illustrated by the word that they're repeatedly shouting at him as he rides into the city on his borrowed donkey. And that word is Hosanna. Hosanna, they say again and again. If you've been around church for a little while or you've read parts of the Bible or you've sung some Christian songs, you've probably heard that word Hosanna. And if I asked you what you thought it meant, you'd probably understandably assume something like, I don't know, God is great or praise God, which is what hallelujah means, a very similar word. But actually Hosanna in the original Hebrew, which was translated into Aramaic, which is what the people of Jesus time were speaking, which was translated into Greek, which the New Testament is written in, which we're now saying in English. So it's undergone a kind of Chinese whispers style translation process. Originally, this was a plea. 
Hosanna was a plea, meaning save us, please. Save us, God. Now, over time, this word didn't only evolve in the way it's pronounced in, as it was translated into different languages. The actual meaning of this word evolved as well. It became an expression of praise that the people of Israel reserved only for the one true God. And if you read the Old Testament, it's easy to see why. The reason that this word evolved into an expression of praise is because the people of Israel found that whenever they shouted, Hosanna, save us from the depths of their hearts, the Lord stepped in and saved them. In Exodus, God heard the people's groans and led them out of slavery. When they were exiled, when the people turned back to God and cried out to him, he heard them and saved them, bringing them back to Jerusalem. When there were enemies at the gate and the people cried out, save us, God rescued them. So by this point, when the people are shouting Hosanna at Jesus, the meaning has become something more like salvation is here or this is our savior. One person put it this way. Hosanna went from being what you'd shout when you were drowning in the deep end of the pool to what you'd shout when you saw the lifeguard diving in to rescue you. Now, one thing really stands out to me from this passage, and it's that the people's words, their Hosanna cries, are accompanied by action. They shout Hosanna and they lay their cloaks and palm branches at the feet of Jesus' donkey. This week, I've been thinking about what it would take to get the people of God out onto the streets shouting Hosanna to the King of Kings. There's a call here, though, as well to action, to using whatever we have, whatever we can find to worship God, to bring what we can and what we can and lay it at the feet of Jesus in worship. This year, as you know, at CCM, we are focusing hard on mission. We want to see people come to know Jesus, our friends, our family, our neighbours, our colleagues. And as we look at the story of Palm Sunday, I can't help but think there's a challenge for us here to think about what we can lay at Jesus' feet in worship. What can we contribute to the red carpet that's being put together of, um, of palm leaves and coats? Perhaps there's something practical we can do. We heard last week about serving practically. Cooking or baking something for a person in need or a neighbour, doing a grocery shop for somebody who can't do it themselves, serving practically, that counts as bringing something we can bring to God in worship. Maybe there's time in your week you can set aside to pray for the people you'd love to share the gospel with. Maybe you can invite someone round to your garden or a park in the coming weeks and show them hospitality, perhaps to somebody who is really struggling. There's a call in this passage to worship Jesus with our voices, shouting Hosanna to the King. And there's a call to bring the little we have and lay it at his feet in worship. So the people following Jesus are using a praise word meant specifically and only for God, which means salvation is here. This is God's promised saviour king and he's here to rescue us. Which begs the question, to rescue us from what? Jesus has powerfully demonstrated to the people of Israel that he is God's promised king, here to establish his never-ending kingdom and save God's people. But is he the saviour king the people are expecting? They're desperate for a new king who will rise up and overthrow the Romans, bringing freedom to Israel that way. After all, this is how God's rescued his people in the past, by overthrowing the oppressive regimes causing them problems. 
But if that's what they want from Jesus, they're going to be surprised. And if that's all that Jesus came to do, topple the Romans, well, then he'd have no relevance for us today. Thankfully, that isn't what Jesus came to do. In fact, there's nothing in his life which suggests that he had any intention of leading an army to attack and defeat the Romans. Let's return, shall we, to that great big donkey-shaped elephant in the room. Because sure, Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy by riding on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And sure, he's tapping into the Roman tradition of the conquering hero, but this is no way for a warrior king to enter the city. Where's his chariot? Where are his horses? Where's his army? And yet, riding in on a donkey fits perfectly with the life Jesus had lived. After all, he was born into a poor family in Bethlehem. When they went to the temple to dedicate him to God, they chose the poor person's offering of pigeons. When Jesus grew up, he probably learned his father's trade, carpentry. But when he reached the age of 30, he began traveling all over Israel and Palestine with no one place to call home and no two pennies to rub together. He ate when he could, he slept where he could, but he fed and he healed and he helped other people wherever he went. His concern for himself was inversely proportionate to his concern for others. I think I've used that term right. Anyway, he lived a distinctly humble life. But this was also true of Israel's warrior king, David, who before he was king had been a shepherd boy. Perhaps the people were expecting Jesus to rise up from the poverty he grew up in, as David had, and then lead Israel to military triumph. But what they didn't expect was to witness him dying on a cross about a week later. The people recognized that Jesus had lived a humble life, and here he was entering Jerusalem in a humble way. But what they didn't grasp was that Jesus was going to remain humble to the point of death. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus was in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. On Palm Sunday, we remember Jesus as Zechariah had prophesied riding into Jerusalem lowly and on a donkey. A glimpse of what was about to happen as Jesus was betrayed, arrested, put on trial and crucified. What has he conquered? Well, it certainly isn't the Romans. Thankfully for the people of Israel and our passage and for us today, Jesus' victory is far greater than that. Jesus has conquered an enemy far greater and far more far-reaching and far more problematic and oppressive than the Romans, an enemy called sin. We know that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That not a single one of us could stand before God in our own right and say, every decision I've ever made in my life was for your glory, God. No one of us can say that. Every one of us knows what it is to be sinful. Sin is rebellion. It causes us to worship anything but the one worthy of our worship. And it disrupts, severs the, worship, the relationship we have with God because God is holy 
and he cannot accept sin. He must punish it. And this is where Jesus, the conquering hero, steps in. And this is why we celebrate Easter. This is why Easter is the most important time in the Christian calendar. On the cross, humiliated, beaten, bruised and breathing his last breath, Jesus took the punishment of sin. Despite the fact that he was the only person who ever lived to have not deserved it. Hebrews 12.2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. But what joy could possibly face a person facing crucifixion? Surely only the joy of defeating sin and three days later defeating death and winning the eternal victory over mankind's greatest enemies so that anyone who believes in him will not be punished but will have eternal life in his kingdom. John Piper put it this way, the king has come but this is not good news until we realize that the king has come to die for his rebellious subjects. The people shouting Hosanna might not fully grasp this yet. But the gospel is the good news of Jesus. In taking our punishment upon himself, Jesus has conquered sin for anyone who believes in him. Three days after he died, Jesus rose again and conquered death as well. In response to that question from Gladiator, he rides in like a conquering hero. But what has he conquered? We can say with confidence that Jesus has defeated sin and death. He has conquered our greatest enemies. As we look ahead towards Easter, the second Easter in a row, which looks a bit weird, I want to encourage you to reflect on Jesus' victory. We all have things in our life, don't we, which we'd love to see overthrown. For the people of Israel at the time of Jesus, it was their Roman oppressors. For all of us, it's this virus which has swept through the world, ending the lives of the people we love and disrupting the lives of the rest of us. And we want to see it done with. Each one of us as well has individual desires and needs and things we're struggling with and things we need help with and things we just wish would stop and go away. Bible teaches, in fact, God teaches that we can bring all of those things before him in prayer. And because Jesus has restored our relationship with God, God hears us. He responds to our prayers and he is mighty to intervene. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans in the way the people expected him to. He was God's promised king, but he wasn't quite what they expected. In fact, over the next couple of centuries, Roman persecution of Christians became really severe. It started with them targeting Christian leaders, like in the first instance, the Apostle Paul. Shortly after him, people like Ignatius, who was thrown to the lions in Rome. It got worse for a long time. But then eventually the emperor of Rome became a Christian and declared Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire. Quite a turning point, if you ask me. But the point is this. What did Jesus' followers do when they went about their mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, as Jesus had instructed them to do, but they still dealt with oppression and persecution and pain and suffering? Well, surely the answer is that they held tight to Jesus' victory. They held on tight to the knowledge and the faith that Jesus had established his kingdom and that he will return to welcome his people into the kingdom. This is why Peter, 
writing a little bit later than Paul, for example, in 1 Peter 1.13, says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. And this is why Paul said in Philippians uh, 4, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, these disciples grasped what Jesus had done, and so can we. They understood the eternal impact of his defeat, his conquest of sin and death, and they understood that he was coming back to take his people into his kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that citizenship has been won by someone else, by Jesus Christ. This Easter, let me simply encourage you to reflect on Jesus, the king on a donkey, the conquering hero, who wasn't what the people thought he was going to be, but was far greater. They thought he was going to win a military victory for them, overthrow the latest oppressor, but instead he won an eternal victory. Let me finish by quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Paul says, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 